I want to read Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. It says, search me, God, and know my heart. (laughs) Test me and know my concerns. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Before this morning, I've prayed for God to prepare our church to celebrate Easter, and I found myself praying a real specific prayer. Um, And my prayer has been, God, let this Easter season be a time of testing and turning for me and for our church. And that prayer started weeks ago. Uh, Testing and turning. Kind of the heart of these verses that we've heard many times. Uh, as I say every year, Easter is one of those seasons that we, we, can, um, we can systematically go through and we kind of know the story and we walk through it, but unless we just really stop in the midst of it and pray a prayer like this, we can miss something great. I don't know about you, but I don't want to miss anything. Um, and this is a bold prayer to pray. Um, And it's one that's not often prayed sincerely enough or frequently enough um, in my life and maybe maybe in your life as well. So what I want us to do in these weeks leading up to Easter and maybe even after is to look at examples of the kinds of hearts that different people had toward Jesus in the Gospels and let these stories guide us in allowing God to search our own hearts. Because I think in seeing and reading the scriptures and experiencing the stories and looking deep into the hearts of the people in the stories, and looking in their hearts, sometimes I believe God will use those hearts to show us reflections of what may be in our own heart. And so that's what I want us to do. Uh, because many times we, we need to pray prayers like this on a regular basis because our hearts sometimes are like that cardboard box that's been sitting in our garage for two years. And we're, we might remember what we put in it, but we really don't remember what's in it. And we don't really want to open it because honestly we don't know what's living in it. Right? Do you have... Boxes like that in your house or in your garage, I do. Um, I, I know it's there. I know there's something in it that one day I'm going to need, but the day I go to open it, I'm going to be really careful because I don't know what might come out of it. Something living. <laughs> or or it will, even worse, I may find something that's dead in it. Like, you, you never know uh, what's in it. But because you're not sure what you're going to find, you, you don't want to open it. And I think sometimes that's what we do to our hearts. We don't want to pray prayers like this before God because we're afraid of what he might find if he really searches our heart. We might be afraid of what we uncover and find that maybe we've known was there but we've forgotten or we've just kept the lid closed on it because we didn't really want to take it out and deal with it. Um. And so I want us to just pray that as we start. 
this morning, if we could. Father, um, we don't want to approach Easter uh, as just a holiday like the rest of the world does. We want to experience it. Uh, We want to experience the power of it. We want to experience the resurrection. God, we want to be there. We want to be there in the moment. We want to behold it. We want to see this great thing that you've done. And we want clean hearts before you. But that's going to require us opening ourselves to you. And so the word of the psalmist here in Psalm 139 is is just what we want to stop and pray. Before we look at any any other characters in scripture, any other people who were real and lived real lives and had real encounters with you. We just want to stop and maybe for the first time in a long time boldly pray this prayer. Search me, God. Know my heart. Test me. And know the anxiety and the, the anxious thoughts that are in me. And show me if there is any sinful, offensive way in me before you. And show me what that is and then lead me to the path of righteousness. Lead me to the path of obedience. And we pray that you do that even today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, Matthew chapter 26 is where we, we're going to begin. I want you to go ahead and find Matthew uh, 26. Um, and we're going to call today's look in Scripture a tale of two hearts. If we're going to be spending a few weeks examining our own heart, we're going to look at, at an example of a couple of hearts in, in Scripture, almost polar opposites. And the way Matthew writes this portion of his gospel, it seems very obvious what he's, what he's doing. He's taking two people who have very different responses to Jesus and he's putting their stories together, I think, so that we can look at them and, and, and see the difference. And let them see how they, how they reflect in our lives. But before we get into chapter 26, I want to read to you something that Jesus said earlier in Matthew's gospel, way back in chapter 6. In chapter 6, verses 19 through 21, Jesus said, Don't store up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So if Jesus is saying something really, really important here, he's saying, he, he talks about treasures, especially in verse 21 is where I want, I want you to focus. The treasures of earth are possessions. Uh, Rich Mullins would call it the stuff of earth. And we're surrounded by the stuff of earth and, and it competes for our allegiance and for our love for Jesus. And, and those are the things that 
he, he talks about um, in verse 19, don't store up those kind of treasures for yourself because they don't last. Those are the things that money can buy us and hard work can earn us. Anything that, that fits into that category, anything that we can earn ourselves by our hard work or anything that we can use money to purchase and bring into our lives, that, that is the, those are the treasures of verse 19. They're temporary. And when the time comes for us to move from this life into the next, move into eternity, those are the things that won't follow us. They won't go with us. But then Jesus says there are treasures of heaven. And those are the things that we can't put in a bank and that we can't order from Amazon. These are the, the things that last. These are investments that are made for eternal things. And so, so often, most of the time, the treasures that we store in heaven aren't things that we can see and touch and feel. In some cases, I think we may even store up treasures in heaven that we don't even know, that we're not even aware of until we get there. But they're investments that are made in eternal things, things that last beyond this world, things that can't be measured with numbers. And so when Jesus says this, he talks about these two kinds of treasures. And then in verse 21, he says, for where your treasure is, your heart will be also. And this is what I think Jesus is saying. And this is a point you can write down and remember. You will invest your life in what is most valuable to you. And this is just a universal truth. Whatever is most valuable to me is what I will invest my treasure in. It's just true. If you want to figure out what's important to somebody, see what they invest their treasure in. See where they put their, their money. See what they do with their possessions. See what they do with the time and the things, the, the stuff of earth that God gives them. And we have things, stuff of earth, and we're grateful for those things. But what do we do with them? What do we invest our life in? And you can tell. You can see what somebody invests their life in. You'll invest your life in what is most valuable to you. Your heart and your treasure, Jesus says, will live in the same place. You can't have a heart for one thing and then invest your treasure in something else. It just doesn't work that way. He says your treasure and your heart will be in the same place. So where one is, that's an indication of where the other is also. So now let's move over back to Matthew 26. And let's look at two examples. These are the two hearts that, that Matthew paints a picture of this morning. And I just have a couple of observations that I think that I want to share. And, and hopefully that the Holy Spirit will share with you. And maybe even more than what I'm going to share. Matthew 26 beginning uh, in verse 6. This is the last week of Jesus' life. This is, these are the days moving toward um, his crucifixion. And he's in the city of Bethany. So in verse 6 of chapter 26, it says this. While Jesus was in Bethany 
at the house of Simon the leper, a woman approached him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume. And she poured it on his head as he was reclining at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant. That means they were upset, they were angry. Why this waste, they asked. This might have been sold for a great deal and given to the poor. Verse 10, aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a noble thing for me. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. By pouring this perfume on my body, she has prepared me for burial. Truly I tell you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So as I said, this is during the week before Passover when Jesus would die on the cross, but he's in Bethany. Now, Bethany was a city, if you, if you read, and we have to read the Gospels and understand the details that we find in each one of them to help us put these stories together. So we know that Bethany is the place where Jesus' friends Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived. And Bethany is the city where, where Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. But during this last week of Jesus' life, in the other Gospels, when we read the, the narrative, we find out that during this last week, as Jesus would would spend time in Jerusalem, every evening he would go back to Bethany. And it's likely that he was going back to Bethany and he was spending the night in the home of his friends, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And so every time he would return to Bethany, he was staying there. Now this account took place in the home of a man called Simon the leper. You say, well, why would he have that name? And if Simon the leper was a leper... How was he having a dinner party at his house? Because lepers couldn't do that. The great thing about Simon the leper was he wasn't a leper anymore. And you know why he wasn't a leper anymore? Because he had been with Jesus. Simon the leper was known to have been a leper, but he was no longer a leper because Jesus had healed him. And so what better reason to host Jesus in your home to invite him and his friends into your house to share a meal together in gratitude for him. But during this dinner, there's a woman who comes, who's a guest, and she brings this jar of perfume. Now many historians, and, and you read accounts in other gospels, most scholars believe that this woman could have been, would have been Mary. The Mary who was the sister of Martha and the sister of Lazarus. Because it's very likely that, that they would have been guests at this dinner as well. Because this story is also in John chapter 12. John tells the same story, the same account in his gospel. And he describes this perfume with a little more detail, he says that it was pure nard. And he tells us that this was enough ointment perfume. This was really expensive stuff. This was not just something you ran to Walmart to pick up when you ran out of. 
this was this was something that took a lot of investment and a lot of time uh, to gather. Um, it was ex- as expensive as one year's wages in this culture. So just think about that. A year's wages. Around 300 denarii. And we've said that a denarius, one denarius would be about the pay for a day's wages. So this is about 300 of those is what this would have been worth. And this wasn't just anything. This was the kind of perfume and ointment um, that was used for burial. That's why it was so special and so expensive. It was used for burial to, to cover because they didn't embalm bodies back then. So when a body would die, it would, it would rot and begin to decay, and then it would smell. That's, that's what they said about Lazarus after he'd been dead for three days, and Jesus shows up, and he says, hey, roll the stone away. And they go, Jesus, you sure you want us to do that? Because he's going to stink. This, this was the kind of perfume that would have anointed a dead body to cover up that smell. So think about something that was this expensive. What if God were to lay on your heart to give an offering that was equal to a year's worth of your salary? I don't know what you make in a year. I don't have to know. But just think about that. What if God said, whatever that annual salary is for you, whatever you bring home, what if the Lord said to you, that's what I want you to give? How would we respond? (laughs) Uh, most of us honestly probably wouldn't have enough faith to even hear God say that. Because we would be too consumed with other things. God would have to literally clobber us over the head for us to hear something like that. But if we did hear it, if we did hear the Lord say that, I suspect that maybe in my heart and maybe in our hearts that if we were to give an offering, something, give something to God that big, there would be part of us on the inside that would think, well, what am I going to get for this? Okay, Lord, if I'm going to do this, then, then, then what's going to happen? I, like, if, okay, Lord, if I give this much money to the church, like imagine that. Like, am I going to get my name on a plaque somewhere? Is there going to be some kind of recognition, you know, when you give something? Well, I'll give this offering for something, but, but I want it to be for this, and I want a plaque put on it, and I want my name engraved, so everybody will remember that this came from me. Like, like isn't, isn't that appropriate, at least? I think most of us might think that. We may not say it. But we would have a thought like that. But look at what she does with this, with this perfume. She brings it into Jesus. And this is, for a, this is stuff that's made for a dead body. And Jesus isn't dead. And she comes in and she pours it. She pours it over his feet. And she pours it over his head. And we see the response of the disciples. They, they look and, 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 they, and their response is what 
a waste. What a waste. My goodness. This is like so valuable. And you've just poured it out everywhere. This is, this is expensive. This was way too far over the top for what they thought was reasonable. Right? I mean, it's not that any of them, they were all followers of Jesus. They all wanted to worship. They all wanted to believe Jesus. Like, like it's not that at all. But they were just like, hey, they're probably thinking, Mary, calm down. This is, uh, you're going a little nuts here. That's way too, that's way too much. It was a very irresponsible worship in their eyes. And you say, well, why would they question it? And why would they call what she's doing here, which seems to be a beautiful thing, why would they call it a waste? And here's the next point. I think they called it a waste because in that moment, the treasure was worth more to the disciples than the one on whom it was spent. The only way they could have looked at that moment and said, that is such a waste, was if the perfume, what was tre- the treasure that was in that jar, was more valuable to them than Jesus. That's the only way they could respond that way. They were thinking of all that could be done with this. We could sell this. We could get 300 denarii for this. That's what this is worth. And we could do lots of great things with it. There's another little detail to the story that you have to read all the Gospels to understand. And and we'll read on. But in John's gospel, he gives a little more detail and he says not that all of the disciples objected. But John's gospel points out in this story that there's one particular disciple that raised his voice in opposition to this. And guess who that was? Judas. You say, well, why was Judas all strung up and hung up about it? Because you know what Judas's role and job was in the group? He was the treasurer. He kept up with the money for the group because they had to have money to buy possessions and I'm sure people were generous and gave them money and he managed that. But what we also know about Judas is, well, well, why was he so frustrated about their mismanagement of something so valuable? It wasn't so much that Judas' heart was right. That was a real convenient thing to say. Oh, well, we could sell this and make lots of money and give it, give it to the poor. We could do all sorts of things for the poor. Judas wasn't concerned about the poor. Judas was concerned that this was a great opportunity for him to skim a little bit off the top. Because this, this was his practice. He saw a missed opportunity for himself. And so it's really easy in a, in a situation like that, if you have an opposition and you begin to voice it to the guy next to you, right? And say, wow, that's, why, sh- why, sh- why, why, sh- why are we letting her do that? 
That's really irresponsible. You know how that goes, right? I mean, that happens in church. You see something, you think it right, and you start talking to people. You start talking to the next person. They go, yeah, you know, you're right. I want... Yeah, they're right. And then, you, and then maybe it, goes, it gets to your little group or it gets to you in your Sunday school class. And, you know, oh, everybody kind of starts talking. Oh, yeah. And so then it, it becomes a big rumble, right? But nobody, nobody runs to the pastor and tells him. <laughs> they're just all talking about it. This is what's happening here. They're all talking and they're saying, how? Why are we doing this? Why are we letting her do this? And it says that Jesus discerns. He just knows. Aren't you glad Jesus isn't the pastor? Because he just knows when people are talking about stuff. You don't even have to tell him. He just knows. And he answers them and he, and he defends her and he corrects them for their criticism. See, Luke's gospel in chapter 10, Luke, Luke also tells this story. And Luke names her and says that it's Mary. And it makes sense that Mary would do something like this because what's the other story or account we read about Jesus being in Mary and Martha's house? Martha was the one who was running around frantic. She was trying to do all the work. She was trying to be the Martha Stewart of, of, of the occasion. She wanted to make sure everything was set just right and she was working in the kitchen and coming in and out and being the, being the hostess she wanted to work. And what was Mary doing? She was just sitting at the feet of Jesus. She was just overwhelmed at the fact that he was there in their house. And all she wanted to do was sit right there with him and take in every word he said. And every moment that she could spend in his presence, she just wanted to sit there in it. To the point where it made Martha mad, right? And Martha even rebukes her. And she goes to Jesus. You remember, she goes to Jesus and says, Hey, can you tell my sister to get up and do something? Can you tell her to get up and help me? Because I'm busting my tail here trying to take care of everybody and she's just sitting there doing nothing. And Jesus has to correct Martha and he says, no, I'm not going to do that. What your sister's doing is a good thing. And so Mary understood it then and I think in this moment because this was coming close to Passover, maybe there was something in Mary's because she had been paying attention. She was the one who sat and actually listened to the things that Jesus said on a deeper level. And so Jesus had talked about dying. And she knew that time was coming close. So maybe this was, this was her way of worship. Because she knew he was going to be dying. And so, of course, it made sense that she brings this expensive perfume that's reserved for, for a dead person because she knows he's approaching death. And Jesus says in these verses that we just read that she's, she's put this perfume on me because she's preparing, it's preparing my body to be buried. It's as if Mary understands something that the rest of the disciples don't in this moment. Have you ever seen somebody spend money on something that you would never spend money on? Have you ever seen somebody like spend a lot of money maybe on something that you look at and go, that's ridiculous. Why in the world would you spend that much money on that? Or maybe you've been the person who someone else has said that to. Uh, you, you've invested, there's something you 
that's really special, important to you, and you invest in it, and somebody looks at you and says, why would you ever spend that much money on that? What's the difference between those people? For, for one, the item is worth more than the money, and for the other, the money is worth more than the item. So when we have a thing, and then we have money, and we're faced with a choice, do we want to buy this or not? It, it really just comes down to two things. Which of the things are more important, the money that I have or this thing that I can purchase with it? So for me, I may see something and that thing that I can purchase with my money is really, really important to me and this is what, worth way more than the money I'm going to have to spend to buy it. But for you, you may look at it and go, that's not worth anything to me. I'm going to keep my money. Whatever we value the most is what we're going to hang on to. Right? If... If we value our money more than we value this thing in front of us, then we're going to hang on to our money, right? But if we find something that's of such great value to us, we're going to say, oh, I'll, I'll pay that for that. Because it's, it's valuable. The, the thing is worth more than the money. So for Mary in this moment, in Matthew 26, the cost of this moment of worship and love for Jesus was well worth every penny that she poured out. In this moment, there wasn't an amount of money that would have been too much for her to pour out on Jesus in admiration, in love, in worship. It didn't matter how much that cost. It could have cost two or three years' wages, and she still would have given it. You know why? Because Jesus was more valuable than any of it. So there's one heart. Let's keep reading. Now look at what Matthew does. He, he paints this picture of Mary in this extravagant worship. And then look at verse 14. Then one of the twelve, the man called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they weighed out 30 pieces of silver for him. And from that time, he started looking for a good opportunity to betray him. There's so much irony in those verses. So we've just read the heart of Mary in this moment of worship. And now immediately... Matthew's narrative goes from this moment in Simon the leper's house with Mary and the disciples. And we know that this, this objection probably started with Judas. Probably right after that, that same day, Judas decides he's had enough. And so he goes to the chief priest. And he says, what, what's the question he asks? What? Will, are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? Judas is willing to make a deal. Judas is looking for a bargain. We have Mary who approaches Jesus and sees see Jesus as, as so valuable to her that she would pour out anything. 
Now we have Judas going to the chief priests, asking, what will you give me if I help you kill him? Judas sees what Jesus is worth to Mary, and then he turns around and he goes to the chief priest, and he basically says, what is he worth to you? What will you give me? And you know what their answer was? 30 pieces of silver. Now, curiosity would make us want to dig into history and and go straight to to Google and start trying to find out, well, what's the value of silver then and what is it now? Because that's where my mind went to. And I was like, okay, how much money is 30 pieces of silver? And I'll just be honest with you all. I found all kinds of opinions, and they were all very different. And, and the reasons for, for the calculations, like some people just took the straight value of silver today and compared it and did the multiplication and said, well, it would be so much a coin would have been about this, an ounce or so. So per ounce of silver, this is how much. And I, and I found answers anywhere from that for us to, to make this applicable, it would have been anywhere from $250 to $3,000. But no matter what that, and that's a big range, so it's not so helpful. But I think what we can very safely assume is 30 pieces of silver doesn't touch a year's wages. It doesn't even touch it. Judas was obviously frustrated with Jesus. He was frustrated with Jesus because Jesus affirmed this wasteful gesture of Mary in his mind. And we say, well, why would Judas want to do this to Jesus? Why would Judas even want to hand Jesus over to the religious leaders? And there's, and, and there's lots of speculation. There is no clear written reason or motive in Scripture as to why Judas chooses to do this. But we can look at the narratives and there are different speculations about why Judas would do this. Some say that Jesus, Judas was realizing that Jesus, he wasn't the physical Messiah, he wasn't the political Messiah that, that Judas was hoping for. Judas is often associated with the zealots who were the, the more militant Jews who really, really, really wanted to see Rome go down. And so he was hopeful that Jesus was going to be that political Messiah. But, but at this point, he had followed Jesus for all this time. And it was becoming more and more clear as they approached Passover. Man, this Jesus is not the guy I'm looking for. Perhaps he hoped that betraying Jesus would force Jesus' hand to move against Rome. Some, some scholars say maybe what Judas was doing was he had so much hope that Jesus was going to be this political military Messiah that he thought, well, if Jesus isn't going isn't to move against the Romans, I'm going to do something to make him have to stand up against the Romans. So he arranged this, maybe not so much that that he wanted to destroy Jesus, but that he wanted Rome destroyed by Jesus so bad, he thought he had to force Jesus' hand. And so we know that that doesn't work. Or maybe it was just that all of the, the initial hope that Judas had in Jesus was becoming empty. And you know when you invest in something 
and you get to the end of it and you figure out this really isn't what I thought it was going to be. You're willing to just get rid of it for whatever you can get for it. You've done that before, right? Maybe you buy something. Maybe there's something at your house that you buy and you're really excited about it and you spent this much money on it and you were fired up about it and you got it home and it really wasn't what you thought it was going to be. <laughs> and you're pretty disappointed and you're like, I don't even want this. I don't even want to use this. And you'll put it on Facebook and you'll sell it for 10 bucks. Because in your mind you're thinking, I'm not going to use it. I'll get anything I can get for it, right? That's almost maybe what Judas' heart may have been like. Maybe in the beginning, maybe he was so hopeful. He had this idea of what Jesus was going to be, and then it turns out that what he wanted Jesus to be just wasn't what Jesus turned out to be. And he's like, well, if I can't get what I want out of Jesus, I'll take whatever I can get. What will you guys give me? It's almost like he sells Jesus at a yard sale. But whatever the real motive was, we, we know that he was motivated by money. Because he asked the question, what will you give me? And, and the, can you imagine the chief priest at this moment? They would have been really shocked, I think, to have one of Jesus' own followers show up and say, hey, I'll hand him over to you. What is it worth? Like, they were probably super excited because this, this was the best thing that they had hoped for so maybe they could sell him for 30 pieces of silver the one thing that we do know about 30 pieces of silver back in Exodus chapter 21 it associates 30 pieces of silver with the, with the price of a slave basically in Exodus 21 if, if it, the command there is if if I have an animal um, that somehow injures or, or kills a sl your slave, if one of my animals kills or damages or hurts one of your slaves, I have to compensate you for that slave's life. And the price for that is, guess what, 30 pieces of silver. So Judas literally sells off Jesus to the chief priest, for the price of a common slave. In this case, where in Mary's case, Jesus was of way more value than the treasure. And the treasure was significant. A year's wages for what she spent on Jesus. For Judas... 30 pieces of silver was more valuable to him than Jesus. Jesus meant nothing to Judas. There's no way, that's the only way Judas would have been able to sell Jesus off for 30 pieces of silver. So I think it's obvious that Matthew puts these two together and he contrasts. I, I, I think it's completely intentional that he tells the story of Mary, he tells of the of, of the, um, the anger from Judas and, and, and that bleeds over into the disciples. And then he tells of Judas, that was just the last straw for Judas. And he decides, I'm, I'm going to do this. And he sells out Jesus. There's two things 
that I think this reveals about these two hearts or two, two pictures of contrast that I want to give you as we conclude here this morning. I think that we can see a contrast in these two ways. First, we can see a heart that gives of itself versus a heart that gains for itself. Now, this is where the application part comes in. None of us have done either of these things that we've read about. None of us have given a year's wages in worship to Jesus this extravagantly. Likely, I say none of you, you may have. That's remarkable if you have. But, and also, none of us have sold off Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, literally. We, we've not sold off Jesus for 250 bucks. But we do these things. So when looking at our own hearts, which heart, which one of those reflects our heart? Do I have a heart that gives of itself in worship? For the right reason, for the right motives. Or do I have a heart that gains for itself? Because here's the thing. Sometimes we try to, we do what looks like the first one, but we're really doing the second one. We may, on the outside, look like we are giving of ourselves, but we're not really giving of ourselves on the inside. We're, it looks like that on the outside because we may be giving time or money or resources to something. We're trying to give of ourselves, but we know if we're looking at our heart, we're really, we really have a heart that's trying to gain for itself. It's not easy to tell the difference between these two on the outside sometimes. But there's very much a difference on the inside. Mary had zero concern for what she was gaining in this. Other than Jesus. Judas is more of the picture of my kingdom come, my will be done. He knew what kind of kingdom he wanted Jesus to bring. He knew what kind of Messiah he wanted Jesus to be. So I think we have to ask ourselves when we, when we consider what do we do with Jesus. Do we only want Jesus if he's the Jesus that we want him to be? Can we fall into this trap of Judas and approach the gospel and approach Jesus as if to say, yes, I want Jesus, but the version of Jesus that I want is my version, not the true Jesus. Judas was ready to take in the, his version of Jesus that he wanted. But guess what? You can't, you can't make a version of Jesus that's better than Jesus. It's just not possible. When Jesus doesn't do what we want, we'll trade him off for that thing that we want more. A heart that gives of itself versus a heart that gains for itself. And here's the second one. I think in this story we also see a heart of limitless sacrifice versus a heart of limited bargaining. 
limitless sacrifice versus limited bargaining. Have you ever asked yourself the question, is there anything that I would not be willing to give up for Jesus? That's a tough question. If God were to call you to give up something in his name for him in obedience, is there anything in my life that I would have to look at Jesus and say, nope. Nope, can't do it. I think Mary is this picture of a limitless sacrifice to say, I will give, I will sacrifice whatever I have to to know you, Jesus, on the deepest level. Whatever I have to give up, I'll give up. There's no limit to it. A year's wages in this culture, like nobody did that. Is there anything I wouldn't give up? The heart of limited bargaining does what Judas would say. What will you give me? What will you give me if I sacrifice this? I think way too often maybe that really reflects our heart more toward Jesus. He may call us to be obedient and we, we may be actually willing to be obedient and sacrifice what he calls us to. But in the back of our minds we're thinking, well, what are you going to give me for it? What am I going to get in return, Jesus? Like, there's got to be something in it for me. So the question I, I want us to end with today is to ask the question is Jesus the means to the treasure that you're looking for or is Jesus the treasure you're looking for like what does your heart want most and what has your hearted your heart wanted up until this very moment has your heart wanted the treasure that like you want Jesus because of what Jesus can give to you? Or do you want Jesus because he's Jesus? Do you want him? Philippians chapter 3. I want to end with this passage and this last point. Philippians chapter 3 verse 7 says, But everything, Paul writes, But everything that was a gain to me I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing what? Value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Paul says there's nothing else that comes close to being more valuable than just knowing Jesus. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung. You know what dung is. We don't say dung anymore, but you put whatever word you want to put right there. So that I may gain Christ. He doesn't say so I can gain the, 
gain the things of Christ or all the blessings of Christ or all of the things that Jesus get, promises to give me. He says, I, I've, I've considered everything else done so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God based on faith. My goal is to know him and the power of his what? His resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. So here's the last point. Jesus isn't the map to the treasure. He is the treasure. 